Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, world. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, I am joined by my friend and my colleague, Leslie Contapitas. Leslie, back in, I guess, like September, told me about a trip that she had done for a year, very recently, in South America, with the largest portion of that year being spent in Colombia. So being a sucker for stories and information about travel and adventure, obviously I was totally hooked by the things that she was telling me. In this episode, she went so much further. I mean, she dropped some crazy stories on me, things that I didn't know that she had done, some awesome experiences. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing that because I love doing this one. Uh, I should mention a couple of things. Uh, first is, you might be able to tell by my voice, but I'm pretty sick. And Leslie was sick too when we recorded this. Did my best not to be sniffling all the time. I know that that's super grating for you and like not something that you want to listen to for an hour and a half, but there's a couple in there. And I'm sorry about that. Also, this was recorded after hours in a school building, so there's some just like outside noise and things like that that might be going on in the background. The wizard did an awesome job with the with the body of this uh, episode, so it shouldn't bother you too much. But if, if you hear it, I'm sorry about that. All right, one of the things, that if you've listened to these episodes, that I like to do when I do a solo podcast is I like to read off something in the intro that I wrote while I was traveling. Uh, Leslie told me that when she was traveling in South America, she wrote in like a travel diary, and I asked her a really intrusive question, can I read a page from that in my intro? And she was super cool in allowing me to do that. So I'm going to do that now. Um, I'm sorry, Leslie, if I don't do this in the voice that you wrote it in, and I'm sorry to any people in this uh, journal entry if I mess up your name. I'm going to do my best. Okay. Monday, May 22nd, 2017. Yesterday I turned 25. I had a good birthday. I drank wine and ate cake with Halska. So I would say it was a good birthday. Halska and Elki had woke me up at midnight that night before to wish me a happy birthday and give me a present. Halska brought me a purse. I had noticed a man selling on the street our first day in Potosi. The next morning, we had went to a local restaurant and ordered kalapurka, which is a traditional soup made with a stone. Because of the stone, the soup was still boiling when it got to the table. The soup was very good. It was spicy, but good. We spent the rest of the day with friends we had made in San Pedro, Chile, drinking wine. Hannah and Paul are very interesting. In October of 2016, they got married in London, and instead of buying a house, they decided to take a year-long honeymoon to Asia and South America. I want that. I want someone who is coming and exploring with me. Another man from England had also joined us that night. He was telling us about a 10-day silent meditation he did in Brazil, which is ironic because he doesn't seem to ever shut up. I think I would go crazy if I ever had 10 days of silence and thinking. I think I would be too scared to get that deep inside my head. Now I'm drinking coffee. I spent this morning all by myself. Everyone had gone out, but I knew I needed some alone time today. Hell yeah. Thanks, Lizzie. Everybody, hope you enjoy this one. As always, send me some feedback. Let me know what you think. Thanks.
And here we are. The reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast is because, well, first of all, uh, we're, we're colleagues and friends, and you did a trip in a manner that I would like to do one day, both in location and in the nature of the trip. So um, why don't we kind of start at the beginning? You did a year outside of the country, but set the base for that. Like, what were you doing prior to taking a trip? Okay, so before I had left, I was living in Memphis, Tennessee at the time because I was a part of Teach for America, and I was finishing my second year in the Corps. And at that point, I was doing Teach for America, working full-time, and a master's student. And as soon as I finished my master's degree, I knew I needed a break from all of those, not to say real-life experiences, but a break from things that you felt you needed to do. Mm. And I felt that I needed a moment to myself to actually experience life in a way that wasn't uh, structured for me. And so I went to Columbia I want to say March of 2015 was the first time I was there. And I had... How, how much time between... So you're from Philly. Right. Okay. So I'm from Philadelphia. Well, this might be the stuff that you want to... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, that's cool. Okay. I'll go back. I'll go back. So I'm from Listen, Pennsylvania. It, it, it just flows. So all this stuff like... <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'm from Pennsylvania originally and then went to Temple. My last year at Temple, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher 100%, but I also was sort of, sort of an indecisive person. So I did not know exactly how I wanted to enter that. And Teach for America, I, I applied for the last deadline. So they have five different deadlines to follow. And I applied the last one and got in. And so I had about a week to decide whether I was going to move to Memphis or not. And I decided to do it. For me, I had only ever lived in Pennsylvania at this time. I knew that travel was something I wanted to experience. I knew that living in uh, different communities and areas was something I was interested in. So it kind of seemed the best option. And taking it, I 100% happy with my experience. Doing Teach America, I know that there's, uh, they have their own stereotypes to it as well, but I could say for me it was a good choice because I was able to work professionally for two years. I was able to be a part of an organization that helped me develop as a teacher. I got experience with special ed. I got experience in another culture. And then I also was able to complete my master's in ed at the same time. So while I was doing all of this during one of my spring breaks, I had went uh, to Columbia. So I believe this is back in 2015 for the first time, just volunteering. Oh, wow. And when I was there, I met the director of the foundation I was volunteering for, and we had talked for a few minutes, and she had said, you know, I've never had an English teacher come, or any teacher for that matter, come and work for me. How would you feel about coming to work here? And so we had talked a little bit about time requirements and things, but honestly, it took me maybe all of an hour to say yes. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I graduate uh, the end of July, and I will be here in August. All right, so I have a couple questions. Yeah. Um, so essentially, like, well, this is just a statement, but so basically, up until that point, then, like, you followed the the proposed trajectory for success, right? It's like, hey, you finish high school, go to college, grad school, job. Yeah, absolutely. And so you picked a place. Why Columbia? 
Uh, I didn't necessarily pick Columbia. It was more so the, the larger program is called IVHQ. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm. So IVHQ stands for International Volunteer Headquarters. Okay. And essentially this larger umbrella program finds smaller local foundations where if you apply to IVHQ, then they will link you with other smaller foundations to go and volunteer at. And so this, I really liked this program for the way that they were supporting local foundations without... Uh, exposing them and turning them into international or larger corporations. Okay. If that makes any, does that make sense? I think it does. <laughs> I don't think I'm explaining this well. Okay. So similar to, I actually can't make a comparison for this, but essentially you would apply for IVHQ. They would vet the people. Once you're vetted through and passed, there's a small in, um, essay component and uh, application that you have to fill out. Once you're through the program, then you can have a choice of smaller foundations that you'd like to go and okay. volunteer at. Yeah, that and makes sense. Right. So essentially, this larger corporation is trying to give publicity to these smaller foundations in underdeveloped countries. They have some, uh, I think it, ori like it originally started in New Zealand, so they have corporations in Asia, uh, not corporations, they have uh, small foundations, foundations in, yeah. in Asia as well as South America, and I believe some parts of Africa. So... For me, uh, I knew that I only had a limited amount of time, and so South America seemed to kind of be match the time limit that I had as terms of booking flights and duration of flights versus how long I'm going to be there. So I had always been interested in Colombia, and Cartagena, to be quite frank, was one of the options, and it's more of like a beach Caribbean feel, so right. I felt, why not go to the beach while I'm volunteering, so I picked it. And um, I loved it. I really loved it when I was there. We were working with children uh, who were living in a rehab and were there for uh, services and because they dealt with substance abuse or prostitution issues. And then we also did adult teaching English projects. Kids themselves who were like child prostitutes? And, okay, mm -hmm. wow. So then we worked with adults who want to learn English for employment opportunities, because if you're able to speak English in Latin America, you're able to be employed pretty easily. And then we had also volunteered in gardens. We had a huge gardening program where we established gardens in uh, back in neighborhood homes, so they're able to sell the produce to local restaurants. That's cool. Uh, we worked with childcare, so smaller kids uh, from 18 months to about two or three. And then we also worked with senior citizen um, and elderly people in the community. So we had a variety of projects, so people who would come would be able to pick and choose what they wanted to do. Okay. And I went specifically just to teach English. All right, so there's a lot there. Right. Um, this so, is before I'm even working, but yeah. <laughs> really? Well, so this was when I had went back in March in 2015. Okay. And first was introduced to the program. So while I was there teaching English, I had talked to the director, and she had... Uh, found interest in me. She said, I've never had a teacher come and work for me. I would love it if you came to work in South America, in Cartagena for the year. So I told her I just need to think. I had a couple questions, but as the hour went on that we had this discussion, I was pretty much sold to, to move there. And she had given me two options. She said, I also have a foundation in Bogota. You can go to Bogota or to Cartagena. And to me, Cartagena seemed far more interesting because the lifestyle I was living before, which was school, work, grad school and so I wanted to be right. on a beach in nice weather this type of experience and so I said Cartagena would be great sign me up I'm done and graduated with my MED in July so I can be there as soon as August 1st 
And so when I came back, I told my boss I would not be returning. And I quickly started to gather my things and put them in storage. And then by August, I was on a plane and out. Any trepidation about doing it alone? No. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, honestly, I think it was one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah, I was wondering, like, what is, um, like, did you have success stories? Like, what's the rehab process like for someone for <laughs> dealing with a child in, like, the sex work industry? And Right, so it, it's, um, it was interesting to, to see. So I was one, the education coordinator. We also had two other coordinators who lived at the house. I really should provide more context for these things. I apologize. No, it's okay. All right, so to give you context, essentially what my job or my role was, so I came in as the education coordinator, which um, we had a house where the volunteers would stay. So when you come and sign up for this program, you're essentially staying in a hostel-type situation. And volunteers can come for two weeks, or they can stay as long as three months, depending on what they sign up for, and they pay their fee, uh, depending on the duration of their stay. And so my responsibilities were to run the hostel, quote unquote, okay. make sure the food shopping was done. We had a cook and a maid who would come every day to prepare meals, but I still had to make sure that people paid for extra nights. Uh, if someone was sick, I would have to go with them to the hospital, and I would have to act as a translator at times. So essentially being the foster parent for these volunteers who are here, some of them were well-experienced travelers, some of them were 18, first time out of the country. So we had a variety of volunteers the oldest volunteer I think we had was probably 61. And we had all different um, creeds of people, which was kind of cool. Majority, uh, I would say, would be Canadians and the UK. But we definitely had um, like a, a good variety, I would say, of people who came through. So we're living in this house with multiple cultures going on, none of us necessarily natives, to Colombia. Uh, and then we go and we serve at these projects. And I was not doing this by myself. It was myself and one and two other coordinators. One of them was from Poland, who is now one of my best friends because we lived together for the year. And the second one uh, is a native to Colombia, and he learned English through our program, so she hired him on as staff. So between the three of us, we would go and take volunteers to these projects, and uh, depending on what our expertise was, that's where we would go. So the, the rehab program specifically was probably one of our more interesting programs. And um, the kids would live at this center. And the center almost looked as if it was a resort without any type of electricity. Wow. If, that, if you could picture that in your head. So it was really in the middle of nowhere. So we would have to take two different buses, cross a highway, take a, what's called a tuk-tuk, which is yeah, yeah. kind of like a golf cart, right? Um, yeah, they're all over Southeast Asia. Exactly. Yeah. Just to get to this place. Uh, the reason why they had it so secluded is because they had a long history of kids trying to run away. So they made it in an area where even if a kid wanted to run away, they wouldn't make it too far before they dehydrated because Cartagena is about 90 degrees every day. Yeah, we're going to get into like the the stigma of the years of like violence and, and drug trafficking and things like that. But is is the like are these kids remnants of that or is there? So it depends. A lot of the the kids who are in this program they they range from ages 12 to 18. Okay. Um, so the kids that were participating in this program did not necessarily come from Cartagena. They were able to come or participate from all over the country. So the kids were chosen by the, the through this government program to come and. Uh, live at this place to receive rehab. But I would say, based off of their background stories, some of them were just 
problems with abusing marijuana. Some of them were more serious problems uh, involved in cocaine or harder drugs. Uh, some of the girls who were involved in the program had experiences with prostitution. Uh, so they were all there for a variety of reasons. Uh, I can't speak too, too well on their exact background or family. I can only know what they've told me. Because they were living at this rehab center, I never had a chance to meet their families. Okay. And how long did your volunteer service last? So I volunteered, a, I believe, a total of nine months. Oh, wow. And then I took a few months to travel for myself. When you were volunteering, did you get to, like, like did you go to Bogota? Did you get to see the rest of Colombia? Yeah, I got to see a lot of Colombia. I went as almost, to, well, I would say to the border of Venezuela. There's a place called La Guajira. Um, the one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen because it's not touristic yet. And mm. uh, Venezuela, as I'm sure you know, is in a very horrible place right now. So Venezuela itself is not touristic. This trip itself was interesting to me because um, we had went to a larger city in Colombia on the coast, Santa Marta. And from there, we took many <laughs> local buses because La Guajira is not necessarily a tourist destination yet. And... Um, I remember at one point we were sitting in the back of a Jeep going through the desert. There aren't any roads. Um, packed in a car with all of these locals and this man is driving what seems to be 80 miles per hour or so. And the whole, we're packed like this in the car and I put my foot on the speaker and he started to yell at me because it made the music softer <laughs> so we're blasting this music going 80 miles per hour driving this desert and i'm the whole time thinking isn't this worth it am i going to die here <laughs> um but when by the time that we got to like we had to stop in several villages before we got there um we actually saw a truckload of people packed in the back coming from Venezuela into Colombia over the border. And oh. we're just taking people in, taking people in. Uh, and then La Guajira itself is right when you're uh, at where the Pacific and the Caribbean meet. So it was just every shade of blue you could think of. It was really, really nice to see that, to see the people and to also see the, the country because there's a lot more to Colombia, I think. But I got to, to do the sou southern part of Colombia as well. I went um, down to Medellin. Um, I went as far south as uh, a small town called Ipiales, right on the corner. Uh, I mean, right on the border of uh, Colombia and Ecuador, but Cali, Salento. All, yeah. One thing that people always ask me is, um, like, oh, they'll say, you got to be careful, or, or is that going to be safe, or is that country, like, what's it, what's it like politically? And ultimately, and the message that I always give on this podcast is like, just do it. You're going to be fine. Like, be smart. We did like a whole episode about like health and safety. Um, but like the caveat is, yeah, like things, like things do happen. Like even like that small moment, like you were saying in the car, like I've had those too. Like I've been flying through traffic in, in um, countries with no traffic lights in a tuk-tuk. Like, holy shit, am I going to die right now? Um, Overall, like, did you feel like the time that you were in Colombia, like with its reputation, that you were safe and taken care of and accepted? I would say more or less yes. Uh, obviously, there are times, I think, any time you're traveling, there are always times where you have to question your safety and be a little more cautious. But in terms of any other country I visited, I would say it's not any more dangerous than that. I think a lot of the crime that happens is more personal relation 
crime. Um, I did see some terrible things happen, but it it was within a context. For example, we were uh, taking a cab with some of the volunteers and we got stuck in traffic because there was a small car accident and the one guy, I guess, was turning and he shouldn't have been turning and hit the other guy's car and the guy got out and started to yell at him and the other guy started to yell back and so he took a cement brick from the ground and smashed it on his head. But these are like personal circumstances. He didn't just seek this guy out and do it. So not to say that violence doesn't exist in this country, but I think no more than it could in other countries, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's always like the, you know, popular town square area where like tourists are getting their pockets picked. Like that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's Manhattan. That happened to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got pickpocketed. Really? When I was in Medellin. Wow. Yeah, I didn't. They didn't get your passport, though. No, they they only took my phone, and um, it was. I think tourists should be aware of this or know this if they've traveled. But it's the people who try to sell you things on the street that yeah. you have to be the most careful about. And so people would walk around and say chicle, chicle, just wanted to sell gum, and those are the people who tend to swipe things out of your pocket. And that's what happened to me. Did you know what happened when it happened? I didn't notice until maybe five minutes afterwards. Mm. At that point, it was just gone. So what, do you even report that or it's like, it's, nothing's going to happen? Um, I didn't report it necessarily. I had wanted to kind of go through my insurance to get a new phone. Okay. And so when I did that, my parents had received the phone and they, they wanted to charge a lot of money to ship it to Colombia. So my parents just picked up at the store. They went to send it to Colombia and it got held in Bogota and they actually had asked me for an additional 450 US dollars to retrieve the phone from Bogota for importation tax. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's I, called a bribe. <laughs> I just said you can keep the phone. <laughs> yeah. What, what did your friends and family think when you were like, like I'm going to Colombia? I definitely got a lot of feedback from my friends and family about it. My parents were not the most thrilled. My mom just constantly worries, I think. Um, my dad was pretty supportive. He, I think my parents thought I was making a rash decision without thinking it through mm. because I, I tend to do that a lot. Hence, I moved to Memphis within a week's notice. But um, at the same time, I kind of had to tell them, you know, I've made it this far. I've done all these things on my own. I've lived by myself and moved far away, so I'll be okay. My mom would constantly... <laughs> But just constantly try to make jokes or make jabs at it or, well, what if your grandmother gets sick or this happens? Yeah. And I know I try to remind that, well, I still can get on a plane. There will be planes in Colombia. I can always come back. It's not the end of it. And when I phrase it that way that I, I am coming back and I can come back when it's necessary, it's hard to ease people. Yeah, I think sometimes too people just like, they just don't know, you know, like... Um, <laughs> A, a totally different country, a different area. But like when I went to Kenya, some of my family members were like, "Oh my God, is that safe? Or like, what's gonna what's gonna happen there?" I told someone, it might have been someone here, and someone said something super ignorant, like, "Oh, there are cannibals there." And it's like, "Yeah, okay, like you heard some crazy story once, and like you just you just don't know." And like if again, like anywhere you are, you have to have your wits about you. You have to be smart about things. Oh, but that was a hundred percent after. Are you sure? Aren't you scared? The next question was, are you going to buy a lot of cocaine? <laughs> so, yeah, they, they play into the stereotypes all the time. Yeah. And so it, it was just this constant, well, I'm going to volunteer, so no. <laughs> so I'm going to segue with that. Like, let's talk about that. I think that 
right now, I guess people's perception of Colombia might be, it sounds silly, but like shaped by narcos because it's so mm -hmm. popular. And um, it, again, like for better or worse, when people think about places, they think about them by their stereotypes. And so Colombia, cocaine, um, drug trade, violence, some of that's warranted. Some of that seems like it's totally unwarranted. So what are your experiences with, I mean, we talked about safety, but like, is there a lot of exposure to those things when you travel there? Yes. Uh, I understand the stereotype and I don't think that it is as true or uh, I don't think it's to the degree that people think. So Colombia obviously is known for this for a reason. It's not that they don't have a history or a past of cocaine or drug related trafficking, but it has drastically changed throughout the past 20 years, I would say. And so uh, this is actually a topic that I was able to talk to multiple people about because it, when Narcos was coming out, actually, I think just the first, I never watched it, but I think the first season or so had come out right when I was getting there. When you were getting there? Yes. Okay. I want to say because it's only, there's only two seasons or so now, right? I've, I haven't watched it either. I think there's like three or four. Oh. I'm, I could be totally wrong. Either way, uh, someone will send me a message like you. You don't know what you're talking about, guy. <laughs> um, well, what's interesting is, oh, since so many people had asked me that when I was there, it was something that I did want to address with people who were from Colombia, right? I think they could speak more intelligently than stereotypes, anyway. So I did ask, and not to say it wasn't available, it absolutely were, was, but it was in the touristic parts when you mm. were walking around the neighborhoods because. When I was living in Colombia, I wasn't necessarily sense. in the, I was not necessarily always in the historic part of Cartagena. Yes, I would go once in a while for ice cream or for a drink or something, but most of my time was spent in the neighborhoods or the barrios outside of it. And so I was really seeing how people of Cartagena were living and that was not what was happening in those cities. Yeah. And I could say every time someone had offered me drugs would be when I was in a touristic part of the city. I had went to Medellin at one point, and I would say at least every other person who was trying to sell something in the street would also say cocaine, marijuana mm -hmm. on the side. And so all constant dealers. But I was visiting Medellin. I was not living there, so I was in a touristic area. So I would say it's, it's the stereotype is only played out in touristic areas. Yeah, you're making me think of like any backpacker district I've been to in any country. It's marijuana, cocaine, like, no, no, thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, like, I, I've heard both sides of this. Like, what is the, if you've even experienced this, like, what is the perception of, like, uh, Escobar? Because there's all this awful murder and drug trafficking and things like that, but then there's also, like, schools were funded and, like, public work projects and things like that. So this is something that my friend and I, when we went to Medellin, we debated a little bit. And so some of the proceeds of these Pablo Escobar tours still go to the Escobar family. His brother is wow. still living there. And so some of the tour companies have connections with his brother where they'll- Like, like cocaine tours of like, this is where he lived and this is- Right, right, right. On the tour, we went to where he was shot. We went oh, to the grave. Wow. We saw um, the Monaco building, all of it. And so I think tour companies are- you know, paying the Escobar family in ways for more access, which is great for tourism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but as someone who lives in this country and actually is dealing with the effects of right. Pablo Escobar, how do they perceive this, right? right? Do you want to be funding a family that 
destroyed so much. Not to say that Pablo Escobar solely destroyed Colombia, but he, like you said, there's also a huge district of uh, Medellin that he created, right. and he created communities and schools, and so there were, were positive impacts of Pablo Escobar, and those are obviously present. People do see him uh, in a positive way, in a positive figure, but they also recognize the harm that happened because of the drug trafficking. My thing is that they've created such a big tourist trap, in a way, based around this, that I don't know what type of information is being given out and then where the money's actually going. So my friend and I had done a bit of research before we decided officially to take one of the tours. At first, we wanted to replicate it ourselves, but we would not be able to have access to those things. And once again, they you made have it, to go with the tour. You company. have to go with the yeah. tour. They, they made it limited in a sense of you have to go because I'm the type of person. If there's a way to do it without right. the tour, I hundred every time right. without the tour. Same. Yeah. So this is one of those situations. There was no other way around. And at that point, being there, hearing so much about it, knowing about it, we didn't want to miss it. So we decided to go. And on our tour, it was just the two of us. No one else had signed up. And the tour guide. So I felt that it was a good opportunity for us to ask multiple questions. And we did get to ask about how much of the proceeds were going to the Pablo Escobar family. And he told us it depends on the tour company you go with. But there are tour companies who still fund the family based off the access they receive. Okay. So essentially what they did was they took us in a van and they drove us around Medellin and took us to different parts. And we got to see some of the positive... Uh, communities and schools that Pablo Escobar had founded in Medellin, but we also saw some of the uh, not so great parts and the destruction and hear the facts of the remnants that was left after him. They also did not only focus on Pablo Escobar, they had focused on other people who were involved. What's her name? Blanca, Black Widow, I know is what she mm -hmm. called. I can't think of her last name. Uh, we went to her gravesite, Pablo Escobar's gravesite, and to me, I felt that it's still an important piece of Colombian history it should it's not drastically it, shaped the recent history yeah right and so it should not be ignored it shouldn't be something that's hushed about I think it should be something that's taught and that people should be educated I just want it to be done in a way that's uh, respectful to the country because there there was one tour that they were offering well, they not this tour company but another tour company was offering that at the end you got to play paintball in one of the destroyed houses Pablo oh Escobar. my god and to me i i yeah, think it would really be like, fun but at the same time i don't think this is a topic that should be right. a game like situation uh because as a tourist you can afford to play paintball in this destroyed city that was once someone's home so um how do i ask this I mean, do, are you aware, of, like, is the country still a producer of cocaine? Like, there's still cocaine throughout the world, and that was, like, the country producing it for a lot of the world. Is it, like, what, what's, what's Colombia's economy right now? Like, what is its main export besides drugs? Coffee. Coffee. Oh, uh, yeah, the whole yeah, south yeah. of Colombia is the coffee region. That makes sense. And it's really beautiful, but... The, yeah, I would say their largest export would probably be coffee. Not Like I said, not to say that cocaine is not still existing there. It absolutely is um, because coca leaves are really like, available in South America. And tourism is coming. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, it was, like I said, it was an interesting experience for me because where I was living in Cartagena, I was in a small neighborhood called Crespo. And so Colombia, they have 
they divide themselves into six different social classes. And mm-hmm. so the first social class would be the most wealthy and the sixth would be the um, most impoverished. And so the neighborhood that I was living in with the volunteers was in that one to two tier of social class. So we okay. were living in a nicer neighborhood for the sake of the volunteers to make sure volunteers were coming, that they felt safe. We had a larger space. It also happened to be right next to the airport, which was convenient because my job was to pick them up from the airport. Um, but we were working in communities that were in that six level category. So I think it was also an interesting experience because during the day when I would go to work, I would take buses, um, and walk into communities that were all dirt roads that you would be walking through garbage. Uh, I remember the area that I had worked in, we called it Granitos, but the neighborhood is called Olaya. And just to get into the neighborhood where my kids lived, we had to cross over some type of drainage system that would fill up anytime um, it would rain. And so Cartagena has a huge problem with flooding because we're right on the coast and to the point where the highway actually runs across the Caribbean Ocean. So as soon as the rain comes, the highway's flooded. And And then like sewage too. Exactly. And so in these more urban, not urban, but in these more impoverished or the tier six communities, obviously this was a bigger issue because there were, there was virtually no drainage. So this moat type sewage thing would fill up with water and kids would swim in it. Whoa. And we would walk across the bridge, seeing kids swimming, going to the classes. And this is their, their lifestyle. This is how they live because the, the houses that we were looking at were literally made of garbage. Like these people at this point, I don't even think they paid rent. They just kind of picked a piece of land and built a home out of what they had. So it's interesting because I think the statistic was nine, no, 85% of Cartagena's population lives off of about one US dollar a day, more or less. Wow. But then you go into the historic district of Cartagena and you are in the beautiful old city. I don't know if you've seen pictures mm-hmm. or not, but it, it, it's amazing. Uh, my boss's apartment, actually, the, the rent it's, itself is, I think, 2 million pesos a month, and it overlooks the entire Caribbean Ocean. It's in the penthouse. It's beautiful. So people like this exist, but they only make up that 15% of the population. Right. Which I guess is everywhere, right? Or is it... It's hard for me is to say. Is the disparity different? Like I, I would say it's a it's a it's a bigger issue because I had also done uh, traveling in other countries while abroad. And for example, I went to Bolivia at some point, and I spent about two months or so in Bolivia. And while I was there, two thirds of their population is still indigenous, so they Whoa. live more realistic. I would say, or more reflective of their actual culture, and they don't. Not to say there aren't wealthy people who live in Bolivia, but the the difference of who who is matching this westernized world versus who is stuck in the bottom of the bottom. Okay. I think there's a little bit more diversity there because they're accepting more of a culture of, well, two-thirds of us speak Quechua, two-thirds of us remain indigenous and live this lifestyle. And so the other third is living a way that they please. But when you're in Cartagena, it's not that the 85% of those people don't want to fit into this westernized lifestyle. They just physically can't afford it. Wow. Or actually can't afford it, not physically. This I don't know if this is sensationalism or not, but Vice did this piece a few years ago, and it, and it has a ton of views on it. Um, how am I going to say this? Burundanga? The, let me see. <laughs> so there's, okay. So they did a piece on a, a it's like a fruit-like plant that grows on a flowering tree, 
and essentially if you ingest it, you can breathe it in, you can eat it. I, I've even read that like someone can shake your hand and it can get into your pores. You lose um, essentially like free will and then your memory. Like, you to, it, like it's been used as like a date rape drug. You didn't hear about this at all? Like no one warned you about this? No. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I thought maybe like they would have. What part um, does it say? They were, oh gosh. I, I know for part of it they were in Bogota. Um, it was called like the devil's, devil's breath? Burundanga. Let me, uh, I've got my computer here too. Well, I mean, you haven't, so. Essentially, like, the story is, or the stories that come out of this are like, if you ingest it, someone can say to you something to the effect of like, let's go to your ATM right now. And you'd be like, yeah, let's go to my ATM right now. And then they'll empty out your ATM. And sometimes, like, you'll wake up in the morning not knowing anything, go to your ATM, and you're like, okay, <laughs> I, have, I have no money left. I'm sure that exists, but I think that I had not spoken to anyone who's experienced this. Scopalamine. Yeah, I mean, it's vice. show how, how so unpopular it's, it's it is. They're super sensational sometimes. I would say the, the type of theft that we, because we did experience some theft, not myself personally, but other volunteers in the house, was more so uh, people on the street just pulling out a knife and asking for money or just grabbing your bag. Wow. Um, and once again, I don't think it was even with the intention uh, to hurt anyone. It was just because they can't afford anything and you look like a white tourist mm -hmm. or a gringo and yeah. they want to take your stuff. For someone that maybe is just coming out of college or even, I guess, anybody who's interested in doing a, a volunteer program like you did, is this a program where like you have to pay for lodging in certain aspects of it? Right. So you would pay... <laughs> I don't remember the exact price, to be honest, but you would pay a certain amount for the time that you stay, and that amount includes your lodging and includes three meals a day. Oh, wow. At least for our foundation. That's okay. what it included. And so our volunteers, they would volunteer Monday through Friday. Friday was usually half day, and so they would have Friday afternoons, Saturday and Sunday to do what they please, or if there was any type of holiday and we would have off, they can use that time as well. Okay. Uh, Colombians take their Independence Day very seriously especially in Cartagena, they're like Cartagenian independence. So the, no, there's a whole week in November that the whole city just parties and does nothing. Oh, so what is impossible. that like? Were you there? I actually left for this week. Oh, man. Because my boss had said that it gets extremely dangerous. Oh, wow. And so she had asked that we put, encourage volunteers to travel for that week. So we, we did. Oh, man. Um, fr from what I understand, it... It's just a lot of fighting, uh, especially in the, uh, like, where you would want to celebrate it, I would feel, is in the smaller communities. Okay. Because I think that's a little bit more authentic than to celebrate a national holiday with a bunch of tourists. So if I were to go into those communities, I don't think that would be a safe decision for me. I did feel comfortable. Honestly, I felt comfortable going into the community that I worked in because they saw me every day and they knew who I was, and also because I had picked up Spanish. Um, oh, you didn't know any before you went? No, I didn't take a single really? class. Really? I learned everything there. Wow. Yeah, so that, that was also... Because you can struggle. speak it pretty well. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm fluent, but I can hold conversations mm. and read and watch movies. And My uh, very limited knowledge about Bogota is that it's drastically different from Cartagena, right? It's 
in in climate, in atmosphere, in oh the culture itself is 100 percent different. All right, tell me about that. So I think Cartagena is extremely interesting for the the fact that it's right on the Caribbean coast, so it actually has a lot of African influence. Mm. It, well, African slash Caribbean influence. I had went to one smaller city outside called Palenque, uh, where it was the first liberated uh, town from. Uh, it was the first liberated town from slavery. Wow. And yeah, it, they had a lot of statues, and we had. They still had a dialect uh, that was similar to their tribal language before they were completely colonized into speaking Spanish. It, it was very interesting because the the people who lived in Cartagena are majority black, uh, but when you go to Bogota, everyone's pretty fair skin because mm. it is very different. And I would say Bogota is a little bit far more advanced. And like you said, climate also has a lot to do with it. Uh, Bogota is cold. Where Cartagena is like I said, this Caribbean feel. You have women walking around in like colorful dresses with fruit on their head, and uh, people calling in the streets selling avocados. And it's just it really gives you I say far more of a Caribbean vibe. Where in Bogota you'd feel like you're in a larger city. And if you go all the way south in Colombia, you're essentially in the Amazon, no? Right, so it depends what part. So you can go straight into Ecuador, which I did, but you can also go through the Amazon, but you would have to go through, you probably have to come through Peru or Brazil to go that way. When you're going from town to town, how are, like, how are you getting around? Do you have to hire someone privately? Are there like bus services? So actually they have Uber. Yeah? <laughs> if you wanted to. I okay. took one once, it was expensive. So I never did that again. Uh, we did a lot of moto taxis, which is big in Cartagena, uh, and pretty much all over Latin America. We did a lot of just regular cabs and taxis. The interesting part in Cartagena is you actually have to negotiate your price. Mm, yeah. There's no meter. I think it's similar in other countries, too. And obviously, when you're a tourist, they're going to upcharge you. Yeah. I heard one tourist who said he paid 20 U.S. dollars to go from the airport to the, like, the city center when it should have been maybe two U.S. dollars. Oh, yeah. And so they, they'll get you. Um, but we would take local buses. Uh, Cartagena actually just started a really adv advanced, but a more advanced uh, system of buses where now they have metro passes. But they also still have local buses where they don't actually have a travel route. You just jump on and hope you're going to the right place. One thing I've experienced with Uber is that Uber's still really new. I mean, it's new here, but it's still, in some countries, like, they're just getting it now. And it's people who are traditional cab drivers or, like, private drivers and things like that, it's stealing their business, and it becomes super violent. Like, when I was in Malaysia, like, they were beating up Uber drivers. Did, like, was this an issue in Colombia? No, 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 I did not see that as an issue in Colombia, okay. or I didn't have any experience, but I, I also don't think I had much experience with Uber in Colombia. Like I said, I had only taken it that one time. And then even when I was traveling in other places, I would always stick to local buses or hitchhiking. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about food. Oh, food is good in like, I'm super interested in it, especially with, okay, so when you were, I know that you say they provided three meals a day, but when you would go into local communities and work on projects, were people feeding you? Were they offering you stuff? Yeah, people would feed me all the time. Uh, the food there is great. It's delicious. There's always like arroz con coco. Um, especially in Cartagena, you always get is fried fish. Coco coconut? Yeah, okay. like coconut rice. Okay. Um, there would always be fried fish with everything, plantanons. Um, 
oh, but and then there's arepas, but there's Venezuelan oh, arepas yeah, yeah. versus Colombian arepas. Venezuelan arepas are a little more sweet than Colombian arepas, but they'll they'll sell them on the street with a big grill, and they'll just stick like cheese and butter inside. Really and it's super cheap. Oh, like Fifty cents. Yeah, <laughs> bottled water everywhere. No, no, I drink tap water. No. Yeah. Outside of the cities too. I'm trying to think. The only place I no, when I went to the desert, like into Lagoira, I took a lot of bottled water because I just didn't have water. We were in the desert. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what places I did not drink the water. I, that's that's really crazy to me. Cali, and more the south in Colombia. Cali is like the salsa capital of Colombia. Oh, cool. Their water, I think I didn't drink, but for the most part. You never got sick. Well, I mean, I got have, sick. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it was from the water. Wow. All right, so at the end of your volunteer service, you said you did that for about nine months. You said you had three months to yourself. Where did you travel in that time? So I took a quick stop in Berlin, which is not oh, too wow. much of a quick stop. And then I went back to South America. I know it doesn't make much sense, but my, my best friend's opera singer in Berlin. So I went to see her as soon as I finished work and went back to South America. And I flew to, straight to Santiago in okay. Chile. Yeah. And I had met my friend, my Polish friend there. I didn't know you went to Chile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chile is really expensive. Really? Yes, because they are extremely westernized. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. And so we had started in Santiago, and we had only spent a couple days there, and we went to Valparaiso, which is on the coast, and I love Valparaiso. It is extremely hilly and um, constantly has earthquakes, but it is the most colorful city I have ever seen. Really? It's graffiti everywhere, so much street art. Oh. Uh, we went to Pablo Neruda's house, which was oh, nice. Yeah. We got to go check that out. And uh, down by the ports. Then we had taken like a 24-hour bus or something crazy like that um, to the northern part of Chile. And we had went to the Atacama Desert. And so we got to see uh, where Salvador Dali was inspired for a lot of his work. Oh, and, cool. Um, beautiful lagoons and mountains and the Uyuni salt flats because I went to Bolivia. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, too. Uh, but, yeah, Chile Chile was really, really amazing. Um, okay, so, wow. All right. Um, did you get to see Patagonia or no? No, no, no. So the farthest south I went was Santiago. Okay. From Chile, I went into Bolivia. From there, I went into Peru. Uh, and I went to Ecuador, but that was at an earlier time. For the salt flats, did you get to, did you do like the multiple day thing where you stay in like a, a house made out of oh, salt? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah? have to. There's no other way. That's also one of those situations where you could take a local <laughs> bus to do it, but I think if you're there, that's also worth the tour. So you hired a driver? So we went with a group of other people, with a group of other people, yeah. Um, so we had two guys who were Chilean with us, which was nice. Another girl from Poland, plus my Polish friend. And I think a guy from France with us. So we had like a cool collection of people, which was nice. And we got to speak to our driver. So altogether, I think we may have paid 300 US yeah. or so. And then we had actually asked him about how much of that he makes. And he maybe, I think he gets less than half of that goes into his pocket. And so then we started getting upset with things like that. But it, it gave us a good insight to the culture because the issue here was the driver was Bolivian, even though we started in Chile. And so when we huh. all tipped him, we tipped him in uh, Chilean pesos because that's a higher exchange rate. 
right, to sort of help him out because the B- Bolivianos are basically nothing. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so we went with the driver and we stayed uh, in different like salt-made homes and um, people's homes over the course of the days. Like it was really beautiful. I wasn't that there during the rainy season, so when I was at the salt flats, it was dry. But other than that, I would say it was worth it. I would love to do it again with during the rainy season to see the water. I've got some questions about this. So, huh? uh, I've seen pictures of the Bolivian salt flats that look incredible. Does it? So, uh, I mean, silly comparison, but I did like the slat canyons in Arizona. Um, like Antelope Canyon. Have you ever seen pictures where it's like the lights coming down through mm-hmm. it? It doesn't look like that. Like it looks like that in pictures. It doesn't look like that when you're in it. Like so, the salt does it really look like like the the sky's meeting the horizon and it's all just. It looks like you're walking on the clouds in pictures, basically. Yeah. It really. I, I have plenty of pictures I could show you. Yeah, that'd be Uh-oh. awesome. Cool. Yeah, I would say probably some of the most beautiful like sunsets I've seen because there's no divide between the ground and the sky, if that makes sense. That is so awesome. Yeah, I want to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was a parallel I was going to draw too is like, uh, I've talked about how to do things cheaply before, but even in, and I had a really cool author on here who wrote a book about uh, how he took a whole year, him and his wife and his two kids, they just traveled the whole world. And he made a good point that I totally agree with, like, you can do things as cheaply as possible, but there's going to be the few things you have to do that are not going to be cheap, like the 300 bucks. But, like, you have to do it. So, like... Oh, yeah, of course. Again, like, Kenya did the safari. There's no there's no budget safari. Like, it's something that you're going to have to it's spend It's the same, like, on. if you were to go to Machu Picchu, there's, there's yeah, exactly. no, like, short way around it. Yeah. You want to do the whole thing, yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I, I really like Southeast Asia so, so much... Um, and we'll continue to go back and see the rest of it, is that it's so easy. Um, getting from country to country is super easy. Um, you know, money, the, the exchange rate, obviously, is super favorable to people in the United States. Uh, just, again, like stereotyping South America, you think of a lot of political revolutions, a lot of them caused by US intervention and interest and things like that, but... Um, even like Chile, um, it, hopping around from country to country and getting around, was it ever a struggle? Was it something that was easy to do? Like, can most people get around somewhat easily? If you want to get around how I got around, you need to speak Spanish. Really? Or know someone that speaks Spanish? Yeah. Um, but once again, I was hitchhiking and such. Yeah. So. Whoa, no. You didn't say hitchhiking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hitchhiked a lot. Um, just because some places didn't have transportation. Oh, plug your ears, Mom. <laughs> no, she knows. It's wow. Uh, actually, there was one point we were in Bolivia, and we were in um, the oh, village where Che Guevara was captured by the CIA, and there was no way to get back. They just had nothing there, so we had to hitchhike to get down. And what should have taken two hours took about five hours because oh. we were in a this like cattle car with all these cows and chickens and families and produce and we're all stuck in the back of this and then the pyre t- tire popped and it was a big... That's all, all right. I so, mean, it was cool. It was a really cool experience <laughs> but at the same time when you're freezing cold in the mountains yeah. of Bolivia and you're like... Yeah, sure. And <laughs> like, okay, so like what's the plan if no one picks you up? We, well, okay, so when we had, when we had first got into Bolivia, um, it was 
when we first got into Bolivia, we had met this guy. So, you know, as you travel, you meet people along the way and you pick people up to come with you. So originally it was this one, uh, like I said, my Polish friend and I traveling together. And we had met this guy from Germany and he started to come along with us in Bolivia. And at one point we had gotten to, um, where were we? In Sucre. In Sucre, in more of the south of Bolivia, we had met a bunch of other people who came with us to do this Che Guevara excursion. So... Oh, that was another thing that I did. I volunteered a lot to stay at places. I should have mentioned that. So mm. we're in Sucre, and this woman had offered for myself and my friend to stay it, in her house as long as we would tutor her daughter in English for the two weeks. How did you make? Like, how did you uh, establish that relationship? I found it on the internet. Oh, okay. Um, she had like a wanted ad. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard of Workaway? No. Okay, you should really check it out. So yeah. Workaway is a great website uh, where you sign up for a profile. I want to say you can sign up as a single person for probably $40 for the year. If you're wow. a couple, it's 30 So we signed up as a couple. Okay. And so you just find people who want volunteers in exchange for a place to sleep and food oh, that's usually. That's awesome. That's how I did a lot of it. So we found this woman who wanted us to teach her daughter. She English. said we, she'll give us breakfast for two weeks and we can sleep there so we did and while we we're Whoa. doing this we met a lot of people a guy from Austria from France um, Argentina and, and the German guy and now myself the United States and Poland and so all of us decided we were going to go and do the route of Che Guevara together so it was cool because I was with a huge um, group of people that no one spoke English as a native language so we decided Spanish was going to be our language for the group because everyone struggled with English which definitely benefited my Spanish and helped our trip um, move along really well. So we started in uh, Samaipata, which is a smaller town in like a jungle-ish area. And then we had went um, over to Valle Grande where all of this was started with she like where the Che Guevara Trail more or less starts in Bolivia. And from there, uh, we had to sort of hitchhike our way up into um, Iguera, which is the place where he was captured. So we got a guy who drove us about halfway to a rock that's supposed to look like the beret that Shea wears. And he dropped us there. And so mind you, we're in the middle of a hill with just a rock on a road with no cars. And so we waited there and we would always bring bread and snacks with us to, so we just had a picnic until another car came. They picked us up and they took us the rest of the way to Iguera. When we got there, we met a family who also owned the uh, school, the only restaurant and the convenience store. So this town was town. More, more or less 40 people was the entire population. And so they said, you can, we have a room. You're all welcome to stay in here if you help us out with things. So we had stayed there for maybe four days or so until someone was willing to take us back. But it was cool because we checked out, they turned, they turned the schoolhouse room where uh, Shay was hiding until they shot him into a memorial, more or less. So people um, who have gone to visit leave like IDs and write nice memoirs on the walls and pictures. And it's, it's a really cool collection. Uh, so we all wrote something on the wall uh, and got to, to see a bit of that. And then they have a large statue uh, and murals and quotes all by Shay around the area. So when we got back, uh, down from Iguera, we then we went more on a more formal tour, I guess you would say, and we saw where the, his body was buried for 20 some odd years before they found it, and um, 
they turned that into a memorial site. We saw the other people who were also part of Shay's groups, uh, their memorial sites. We saw the lavandera where the famous picture of his dead body was taken to prove to the U.S. that he was dead. Uh, which is interesting if you go check it out now as soon as possible because right now it's uh, completely opened as if it was in its original form and the uh, someone had told us at the hospital because they took him to this hospital where the lavandera was and so in the beginning of the hospital it still functions as a hospital in the back is where the the sink was where they placed him and so right now it's just full with graffiti uh, they said though in the next couple of years they want to put it in a glass case so I was able to walk in and look around and touch the sink, but soon that's all going to be gone. So go check it out now. Yo, okay. First of all, <laughs> before we did this, you were saying like, I don't know, like I might not be interesting. Like this might not be, like... Uh, like well, because I'm just a regular person. I wasn't a Mai Tai fighter. <laughs> but this is, in, like, this is incredible stuff. I mean, and, and I just think like, you know, I'm not trying to amp you up too much here, but like the... The way you're doing it, like, you're doing it right. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I'm sure you... But I also think it's the people that I met, and that's why I mentioned all those people, because... Yeah, for sure. Being able to meet them along the way, made traveling... So my Polish friend and I, we were the only two women with this group. The rest of them were men, and I think that also gave us a bit of a comfort level. And sure. we had more people who... not We didn't have any... Besides the guy from Argentina, none of us were fluent Spanish speakers, but all of us were able to speak and have conversations. And so I think we were given a really good hand to do this. But you're also open to that. I mean, you, right, I'm right. sure you've experienced this too. Someone will say, I'm going to Cartagena and they stay at Amelia Resort. It's like, you didn't actually go to Colombia. You went to anywhere in the world that has that resort. <laughs> like, yeah. damn. Yeah. No, I've, I've slept in some interesting places. Yeah. <laughs> it seems that way. But people are really nice. There were yeah, there I, were people I mean, who would let us uh, just sleep in their front yards with if we had a tent for free. Or uh, at one point, I picked up a hammock while we were in Peru, so we were able to take boats and sleep on the boat in the hammocks uh, through the Amazon. And uh, what? Yeah, I went like I we went to uh, what is it called Iquitos, which is in the very northern part of Peru, and. Uh, this actually used to be one of the richest cities in Peru because it wasn't gold, rubber. It was known really? for rubber, rubber and trees. I want to say rubber, I could be really wrong, but some type of product it was known for. Okay. And then uh, they used the Amazonian people and the people living in the selva as you know, free labor. And so yeah. it completely just destroyed this whole area in the economy. So we went to Iquitos and we met um, a guy there named Kevin. And he was from the Selva, and he said that I would be more than happy to take you guys um, with me. I just, you know, you have to pay me some money, and we'll do a trip. And so I think we maybe paid him 200 US each for a couple oh, days. Okay. And that, that's one of those things where you yeah, can no, sacrifice like, your money you and say, <laughs> when am I going to do this? Yeah. So he had taken uh, the two of us. And so first, uh, once you're in the Amazon area, they have boat taxis just to get from place to place in the Amazon. And so where we were in Peru, uh, like I said, we were in the northern part, so we were kind of close to Brazil and getting closer to Colombia. So even at that point, the language started to seem a little different and things just started to seem a little different. So I was a little cautious. That's why I'm glad we went with this guy. We get there, we stay in a hut sort of situation, and we had to fish for piranha to eat. Get out of here. Yeah, I ate larva. That was really gross. Like cooked larva. Yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, Okay, I've had like grubs. Yeah, it it can be interesting. Yeah, it was not my thing. Uh, Wait, so, okay, sorry. Dude, what? So, like... Like you bought larva from someone, or like he cooked? Like you no, we cooked it. Like we cooked it, and he took us like a tour through the Amazon. And so we slept in like the jungle That's one night. Nuts. Yeah, we slept in the jungle and went for a walk at night. We I've seen the biggest spiders I've ever seen in my You're life. You're communicating in Spanish. Yeah, all in Spanish. Okay. Uh, which I felt really bad because at one point we had a guy tag along with us who only spoke French uh, and didn't speak oh. English. And so either way, I couldn't translate for this guy. But he he tagged along. <laughs> This is so crazy. Yeah, it, it was like, honestly, that was probably one of the cooler, cooler experiences I had. I fell into the Amazon at one point. It's really muddy and dirty. Uh, we got to see some schools. Uh, we checked out a village, the village where this guy Kevin was from. He showed us there's no electricity because uh, we're in the Selva. We're yeah. in the Amazon. And then we ended up taking a local boat. So they have two options. A touristic boat would be like the fast boat or so, and it would take you about... 12 hours to get into Colombia via Amazon. Um, but we took the local boat, the slow boat, so it took us more or less four days. And it just stops in random villages along the way on the Amazon, and you just sleep in the boat. And it's 80, I want to say 80 soles um, per person, but then they feed you the whole time you're on the boat. There's a shower and a bathroom, but I chose not to use them. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's nice because. You're going along the boat and you can walk around and meet people and it's families. It's all families who yeah. want to travel and go to different places. And if you stay on the boat for more than four days, you'll eventually end up in, in um, Brazil. But we had gotten off when we got to Colombia. Well, like what kind of boat are we talking about? Like you could sleep in it and it has a covering on it? No, like a no, little no. junker or like a... Like a, like a, like a canu- tiered boat. So it's big. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I know but that. But it's yeah. open. Yeah, yeah right? I understand. So actually, I think that was... It was really cold. I was expecting this to be really hot at night, but it was really cold. Really? So I was wrapped up, and I just kind of slept hugging my backpack in the hammock. Uh, well, like my important, I travel with two backpacks when I travel. So I have my larger backpack, which I just keep clothes, and then a smaller backpack with you know, passport and yeah. things that I want to keep. So I slept with that, and then my clothes were underneath me. Uh, but And to me, that was just, I don't even think that was necessary. I did not feel threatened on the boat. To me, I think that was my mom in my head speaking, you know, you don't, you're so close don't lose your passport right now. <laughs> uh, well, how about mosquitoes on the Amazon? Uh, we definitely bought a lot of insect repellent. Yeah. I got bit quite a, quite <laughs> I a bit. I would imagine so, yeah. Thank God I didn't get Zika. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just also one of those like risks. It, it, that was another thing that a lot of people said to me, aren't you scared about Zika or diseases? And that's where I just had to say... Yeah, I'm worried, but it's not going to stop me. I'm going to go. Yeah. I mean, I always get all the shots just because, I mean, if you're going this year, you got to get them for Southeast Asia. Uh, because I like, I have, you know, I have friends who live in Indonesia. Like my friend Chicho, who was on here, she got, she just got dengue and typhoid at the same time from a mosquito. It's like, that is brutal. That is rough. Yeah. That is really rough. Um, I mean, there were definitely times where I was sick really sick uh i don't know why though if that makes stomach sense. stuff that always happens to me yeah usually some y- stuff yeah. i think it could be from the food i think it could just be um th- this was mostly when i was in colombia so i think it could just be heat yeah uh, Dif- different food. microbes in different places yeah man 
I didn't know like most of this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I would say that Amazon was one. Of, I don't know. It's really hard for me to pick the best part. The Amazon, though, I think the experience that I got to have while I was there, I probably will never be able to do something like that again. Did you write about this at all? So actually, um, interesting that you said that. So I kept a journal since the day that I got there. And so I got August, I got there on August 1st. And so I started writing on my flight over there and not that I wrote every day, but I tried to write pretty frequently and I wrote about the places I went and the people I met and feelings that I had. And so I wrote all of it down. The last entry that I filled out was on the New York city subway, leaving my job interview from here. What? That marked the full year. Wow. All right, this is nuts. Um, that's really cool. All right, all right, this one's maybe, this is going to be selfish, maybe. This is more for me. So I've been working out through, <laughs> through the podcast and through, like, everyone that comes on sort of, like, reaffirms my, um, not my worldview, reaffirms, my, like, my lifestyle or my take on how my life should be lived and the trajectory that it's taking. So you, we had this conversation and tell me if I'm, if I'm right, you plan on doing this more like working and then traveling more for extended periods of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Honestly, I came back because I ran out of money. So, and I really do want to be fluent in Spanish, so that's a little bit of incentive to go back and live in another Spanish-speaking country. Um, but I think it's just, I don't know, I don't want to say in my blood, but... I, okay, I can articulate this better. Yeah. So I'm a little bit older than you, and I'm very... I'm, I'm very satisfied and happy with the choices that I've made. And I've, it's, it's literally what I preach on every single episode. You said you listened to the one I just did with Lynn. And like in my intro, I talk about this, but there's still a little bit of pull from like uh, most, most people my age are married or having kids. And people are like, it's, maybe I'm just refusing to grow up, but like it's freaking me out that like now people have houses. And like I'll have people say like, aren't you concerned that like, women your age, their biological clock is ticking. And like, I'm like wholly unconcerned with those things, but there is still a tiny little pull from me that, that says like, are you not doing like what's normal? But I also think this is a very like United States perception because yeah. this is not necessarily the same social pressures you would receive anywhere else. And not to say there aren't so similar social pressures in other countries, but I, I would say this is dominantly something that you see in the United States, similar to if you go to other cultures that they would have the expectation that you were married at a much younger age. Right, right, yeah, that's right. what I was so, thinking too. So depending on the, the culture you identify with, that, that would determine the social norms you want to fall into. But for me, I've never really found myself identified with a singular culture, if that makes sense. And I think that's what's so interesting to me about traveling and meeting people. Uh, and I think this plays out really, like, really strong into just the decisions that I've made in my personal life. So to me, that type of stuff doesn't bother me. And I think it takes a, like acknowledging it or maybe meeting someone 
or experiencing it yourself to sort of be okay. And I know, I know what you're saying. I had to do that as well. And I constantly felt that I had to justify my actions and I had to justify why I was being here. Well, I'll be here for now, but then I promise I'll go back and use my master's degree and get a full-time job. And I, I did say those things, but I kid you not, um, the Polish girl, I, I should give her name, Halska, who I was living with and why she's my best friend. She, she was the best part about the trip was meeting her. I, my friendship with her, I think, changed the way I see a lot of these things. Uh, just to give you context on who she is, she grew up in Poland, obviously, um, but then she traveled and studied. She's lived in Portugal, she's lived in Indonesia, she's lived in Palestine, um, and all throughout the Middle East. She lived in Mozambique for a number oh, of sweet. years, and this was all uh, while she was a PhD student because she's an anthropologist, so she's f collecting her research, and now she's 32, 33, and she's just got a job in Iceland, and she's going again. So when I, I meet people like her, and I hear her thoughts, and I hear how open she is, and how experienced she is, and educated, and uh, that's something more that I would like to idolize. Yeah. Be more like, that's the type of social pressure that fits me, I guess. So I, I, through that, I think I know the answer, but you don't, you don't give yourself a cutoff age. Like, well, I can do it until this point, and then I really got to think about a career. I guess, but, but why, why do you need a career? Like, why can't multiple things be your career? Why, why do you have to settle into to one place? That's my my thought process is no, I would absolutely never give myself a cutoff age for anything. Um, and like I said, this could also be from people I've met and experiences. My mom actually, she never graduated college when she was going and she got a job in Manhattan and started working. And then she actually went back for her bachelor's degree and graduated a year before I did. And oh, she that's was in cool. her 50s, yeah. almost 60. So I don't think there's ever has to be a cutoff age for anything. I think you do things at your own pace and when you want to, I think what's more, shameful is if you don't do anything right so yeah. like if you feel that you need to do these things then then do them but the, i think the worst thing you could do is to not do anything that's awesome uh, yeah and i think you know i think people project too i think sometimes people project just because they're worried about you and they love you and they care about you but i also think sometimes people project because they're like in a way it's like i want to be doing that and like oh, you know yeah. that's a, self, a subconscious thing it's not necessarily malicious but it's like I don't want to see someone else do this like really fun, adventurous thing when I'm stuck here sort of in this like um, set, set within the expectations that someone else laid out for me instead of like to up to my own total autonomy. But that's why I think if you have the opportunity to do these things, you should, because this is also a comment that's been said to me many times of, oh, I don't think I could do it or how could you do yeah, it? Yeah, or, all the time. I don't think I could be you. And yeah. my mom has said to me, you know, I am so jealous of the life that you have because I wish I could have done that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thankful for my parents for the opportunity they've given me, and not to say that I could do these things without my parents, but it also, I'm not a trust fund kid. This is not, right. none of my trips were funded by my parents. Right. But uh, I, it, I had opportunities and I took them. I would take it that way. So I, obviously there was work that I put into it and I didn't just, at 18 years old, go off and do things. And not that I'm saying I sh you should not do that. You have to make decisions that are right for you. And so what was right for me, knowing who I am, I know I need to get past all of these systematized educational goals that I need to meet so this way I can do what I want. And even if it doesn't work out, I have things to fall back on. Because I know my circumstance. I know my circumstances. I don't have parents where if 
I blow all my money and get myself into a hole that they can afford to get me out of it, right? So I had to think about where am I coming from? What is it within my means? And I had to think of that from a motivation point of stance of, yes, does it really suck that I went straight from college into graduate school and into Teach for America? And was I working nonstop for all of this time? Absolutely. And were those great experiences? Yes, they were the right decisions for me. But I put all that work in so I would be able to do what I want. Because like I said, I came back to States because I ran out of money. But at the same time, I was able to pick up a job in the next week. So I think you, you have to know what's in, within your own means. So not to say that travel is, because I, I also hate the stigma of, oh, anyone can travel because you know money is a, is a part of it. You have to consider that as a factor. And you have to consider circumstance as a factor. If you have sick parents or younger siblings and other responsibilities you take care of, like that's part of life. And so I think you, you more, more so to say, not that uh, traveling is only meant for certain people. I think traveling could be meant for everyone. You just have to be able to understand your circumstance and what opportunities you need to take to do it. I think that we should end on that because that's like a really good closing. Uh, we're also we're like an hour 20 in. Oh, That's wow. how quick right. it goes, yeah. Um, uh, I feel like because the whole time we're speaking, I'm thinking of other things that were happening that I didn't speak of. Oh, no, then we should, like, then we should, if you have cool stuff, we should cover well, it. The only thing that I remembered about politics that actually was extremely relevant for the time that I was there that I should have brought up to you, uh, two things going on I think is kind of offers a cool like perspective. Yeah. The first one was there was a huge vote that happened in Colombia while I was there. Um, that had to do with the FARC organization. Oh, yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to bring that up. No, no, you totally should. That's awesome. Okay, so... Well, maybe give context because people that are listening might know nothing about it. Uh, right. Okay, so FARC essentially is this rebel organization that um, kind of is trying to rebel against the government, and it's extremely dangerous in... Um, like rural parts throughout Colombia because they're guerrilla warfare hiding with like child soldiers and kidnapping and killing in these more rural towns. Now this was really big, I would say 10 years ago or so, it has definitely calmed down a bit, but they have a huge presence politically, right? So the larger leaders of FARC are obviously not the ones living in the jungle and participating in these things. They're the ones who are negotiating. But their with, support comes from? Exactly, yeah. but they're negotiating with the Colombian government on how to be a part of it. So essentially they had this vote for peace while I was there. And so it was either vote yes for peace or vote, vote no. And they've been trying to do this peace agreement for years. This is not a new thing. Can I ask a quick question? Sorry to interrupt you. Is the source of that because of that uh, tiered class system? Or are the people that are supporting FARC saying, or we're supporting, saying like we don't have representation and we need representation? Okay, so it's interesting because the people... Um, I would say it had a lot more to do with what occurred from drug trafficking in Colombia created like this unruliness. Okay. And that's why you had a divide in the government, right? Because people thought the government weren't controlling things well, so we need to protect ourselves okay. because this chaos is occurring. And so if we're not protected by government, we create outside groups, right? Similar to any type of, I guess like, any, any group who would want to overthrow government for their own reasons of the government's not doing it the way we want it done. Yeah. Right. And so that's essentially what this is. People did not agree with how the government was running things because they didn't feel that they were protected, rightfully so. And so you have this other like rebel group that comes out of it. And like I said, FARC had a really high presence. Not to say they did it the best way because they were extremely violent as well. Um, but they actually started to negotiate with the Colombian government. And so they had this huge negotiation deal all set up. They were doing it in Cuba. I, want, I think Cuba and Havana, Cuba. And so there was a vote for the Colombian people and they were doing it based off uh, like strict democracy. So 
Every vote counts, majority rules. And I, it was such a close vote. So leading up to this, all throughout Colombia, not even just in Cartagena, you see everywhere like vote yes, vote no, vote yes, vote no on cars, everything. And from the people I was asking, essentially what they wanted to do was, I should explain the agreement as well. So if you voted yes for peace, what that would do is that would actually take the leaders of FARC and give them positions in government mm. and exonerate them from crimes, right? Oh. If you vote no for the peace, obviously they don't get positions in government and they're not exonerated for their crimes, yeah. but this still could exist, this tension. Like FARC would still proceed with what they're doing. So it was interesting because people who were in the wealthier classes wanted to vote no. They're saying, we don't want peace. We don't think that these criminals should have a place in our government. The people who were impoverished and living in rural areas were voting yes for peace because they're saying, we want this to be over because we are the ones who are suffering. We don't have the protection. We are the ones who live in these places that are getting attacked by FARC. So we want it to be over. And so eventually they voted no. And it was something like 51 to 49%. Yeah. This was just in like 2016, right? It was, right. It was this past, past year. Yeah, yeah. When I was there. Because that was a, a huge deal. We had off from work, all that. And so then what happened after the vote? Were there like demonstrations or? Yeah, actually, so Columbia kind of like preemptively had a celebration that everyone was going to vote yes. And they held it in Cartagena. Really? And so the day before the election, they had this huge celebration about peace and the whole city was shut down. We couldn't get anywhere. And then they voted no. And it was kind of embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to do that. And I think people, like, um, my Colombian friends, so I made one really good Colombian friend while I was there. His name's Jesus. And he had worked with me as well. And so he was at an interesting point in his life because he had just finished high school. He was about to start university. And so he was starting to get, like, now I'm 18. I can vote. I can participate in these things. And so he, had, he was shocked. He was like, I really thought that everyone was going to vote yes. I don't know what happened. So... I, I don't know, because when you look at the population of Colombia, I said like majority of it would be in that category of voting yes. right? So I don't, I don't know how it ended up the way it ended up. Maybe it's a lack of voting. I'm not too sure. But wow. Yeah, that, the aftermath. So you were there for like a really pivotal moment in recent history. Right. The other pivotal moment that I got a lot of backlash on in recent history was the United States election. So when that was going on... Okay, yeah. I was the only U.S. citizen that I was around if that makes sense so you you were here for the election but the campaigning you were in no no no, no, no. i was i was abroad because he got elected in oh my um, god yeah okay right. sorry wow so i didn't find out that trump actually got elected until maybe three days or so after because i was in the desert and didn't have internet uh it's interesting though because i remember talking to a european guy and uh, well, there's a, a bunch of them, and they kept asking me and saying, do you really think he's going to be elected? And I was like, I really don't. Honestly, yeah. like, I don't think anyone saw us coming. It was a joke. I remember watching the presidential um, debates with people and all of them asking me questions about how did this guy even get in this position, things he's saying when he was talking about supporting stop and frisk again, what is his problem, and like bad hombres and all of this. And so when he actually got elected, it... Like, it was so embarrassing. I stopped telling people I was from the United States. Really? I, I really did. And, no, I mean, like, like I get and it. And right after that, um, the number one comment I was getting was Colombians felt happier because at least 
they didn't look as stupid as the United States for voting no. Wow. Because they were around the same time. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I talked about this before, but when I was in Egypt, I mean, this is one guy, but he was like, yeah, we all support, we, we like Trump. We didn't like Obama because like Obama supported the revolution here and like, we're not in favor of it. So like Trump, we know Trump's going to leave us alone because he said that in his campaigns. It's like, all right, man. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, but, but also you have to think of the media that those people yeah, get for in sure, parts of the world. So sure. how is Trump being portrayed right. to these people? But Right. Yeah. Like when I was in Southeast Asia, they, it was all campaigning stuff and it was all Russian television. Yeah. And you're like, why is this happening in Southeast Asia? Yeah, it, it is kind of embarrassing, huh? Yeah, it, it, it got really bad. So I just stopped telling people I was from the United States. Where'd you say you were from? I, I just wouldn't answer. Or I would just, Helschka would say, oh, I'm from Poland. I'd be like, yeah. Wow. Because I just got so sick of that question. And I'm, I'm not saying that question only lasted for a month. Like that, I was still getting that in July. Anyone I met who was not from the States... As soon as I told them I was from the States, oh, Trump. Not even a question, just his name. And then yeah. they want me to react to that. What I am mean, I supposed to say? <laughs> like it really, it didn't seem like it was going to happen. Where, why, am I, um, why am I thinking you were here? We're, oh, we're a year since then. That's, that's insane. Um, well, you're probably thinking that you got in in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, maybe, maybe that's, but, but um, I like the... I'm going down a rabbit hole a little bit here, but like the the next, like obviously New York City, like did not vote for Trump. Yeah. <laughs> the the next morning, like you could feel it on the subway on the commute to work. It was like everyone looked totally dejected. Right, but that that and that was was so interesting to me was to watch this happen from abroad. Like yes, so, I'm constantly reading news articles, and I saw like Chicago literally on fire over this, and a piece of me knew at that moment. Because as a teacher in Teach for America, I have a bunch of teacher friends, right? And so I'm talking to my teacher friends, and uh, they're saying, I don't know how to explain this to my students, and we all teach a similar demographic of students. And in that moment, I really recognized, like, I need to go back to the United States and teach kids there. As much as I love teaching abroad, I, I know I need to serve kids in my own country, and that was something I took from it. And not to say that, like, I'm still going to travel and do those things, but and also I need money. But coming back to the United States, it was a big part of seeing this and I'm like, I need to be able to, to support kid, kids in my community and the United States is my community. Right. And which is cool now that I'm the government teacher. But. Wow. That's also a good point to end, but is there, is there, I mean like, those are like really, those are no, like two no. really poetic ways to end this, but is, is there anything else that you think that is beneficial or... I mean, we could always do another one of these, but... No, um, I, honestly, I think you got my whole trip at this point. I'm trying to think of anything else I saw. I mean, pl- like, obviously, cool, like, hikes and things like that to do, but... Um, most people, when I close out, like, are plugging something. I mean, it, is there social media? Like, do you want people to find you, or I, you... I don't have a Twitter or an Instagram or anything, so you'll never find me. All right, there you go, cool. <laughs> okay, you don't... No, um... I honestly am not too big in social media, but I'm I'm definitely open to discuss with people who are interested to discuss. So, so, email? so yeah, there's like show notes, so I'll put your email address in the show notes maybe. Yeah, email's good. Okay, cool. Um, thank you. So what the hell? This was like, you have some really awesome experiences. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I... Actually, it feels good to talk about them because I feel like anytime you get into conversation about travel, 
like people who have only gone to one country just like constantly talk about it and so you're like oh, okay 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 so I try not to like dive into my travel stories too much but well I have none about South America it's I'll be there one day so I really appreciate this but you're going now um someday uh <laughs> So I've been... Oh, oh, I thought you said I'll be there in one day. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, like tomorrow? No, (laughs) I've also... I haven't... um, I'm still rolling, so the people are going to hear this, but I haven't... I'll be a little cryptic. I haven't explicitly talked about, like, what's happening yet, um, but I've alluded to the fact that, like, I'm leading up to a prolonged something. Mm -hmm. I just... I'm going to save that for the right time, and I'm going to do, like, a whole episode about it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so for everybody, um, as always, thank you. I will put Leslie's email address in the show notes so you could check that out. Uh, there will be like a week or so break because the wizard is going away and he, I'll, exp- I'll explain that to you, but uh, he won't be around to help me edit. Um, but then I have a few that I'm doing while he's away, so those will come out like at the, at the new year. All right, thanks folks. As always, take care of each other. Bye-bye.